Well, what a joy it has been to worship together. Amen, church? And as we were singing a moment ago, I'm not one of those gifted with voice in the ways that some of our brothers and sisters are gifted with a voice up here, but when they sing like they do up here, I'm encouraged and empowered to sing out there. I don't know about you. And, uh, and then I think to myself, I sound better than I thought I did. <clears throat> but I realize I'm listening to Alan come through the speakers. So thank you, brother. Thank you, brothers and sisters that participated up here. You blessed us immensely. And our affections, indeed, have been raised by God's grace this morning. Would you take your Bibles and open them up to Genesis 49? Genesis 49 is going to be our text this morning. And we're just going to take a piece of the chapter. We'll build a little context in just a few moments because we are, as it were, kind of parachuting into an already existing text and context and story. So we'll try to establish a little context in just a few moments. But Genesis 49, and uh, we are going to focus this morning on verses 8 through 12. Genesis 49, 8 through 12. And that will be the text we'll read, actually. I should have said that. Genesis 49, we will read together, beginning in verse 8, read through verse 12. And because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand to hear from the God who continues to speak, church, continues to speak to his people in his word. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 8. Moses wrote, as he was carried along by God's Spirit, these words. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. One of the more prominent themes of Advent season and Christmas season is the theme of Christ as King. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the color purple uh, permeates this season. It's a color that does indeed symbolize Christ's regal reign, his reign as king. Just think about many of the Christmas songs and the Christmas hymns, and it is likely that the theme of Christ's kingship appears. It surfaces before long. For example, let me give you a few as we're getting started, and I won't sing them. Pastor Tim, I'm sorry. I won't sing them this morning. I'll say them, though. Joy to the world. 
The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Noel, 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 Noel. Not nearly as nice when you don't sing it. Born is the king of Israel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels, and so on and so forth, right? Christ as king permeates this season, permeates the songs we sing. It permeates our liturgy as we gather together for worship. It even even actually colors the season for us, as I mentioned a moment ago, through the use of the color purple. But this theme of Christ as king is not merely something found in Advent or Christmas hymns, it is also prominent throughout the text of Scripture. In fact, it is, I would suggest to you, the central theme of the text we're looking at this morning, Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, Christ as King. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. If you're taking notes, you can, you can jot these down. We're going, to jot, we're going to walk through, unpack Genesis 49, 8 through 12, and the theme of Christ's kingship. I don't want to lose sight of that. By answering the same three questions we have utilized throughout Advent thus far, I just can't get away from these questions. They consistently help, I think, us understand the text, consider how the text is fulfilled, and then also seek to live in a manner that is consistent with the instruction of the text. So here are the three questions we're going to ask and answer this morning. First, what is promised? What is promised in Genesis 49 8 through 12. And I'll give you a bit of a sneak peek here. Um, this, is, this is not typical for me. It's not conventional for me. We're going to have five sub points. I know. Things are getting out of hand these days. What's gotten into him? Five sub points. And they're not unique to me, by the way. It's in other pieces of literature. In fact, I'll probably quote Walt Kaiser in just a bit. He's influenced me. But they're right out of the text. What is promised? In the text. Second question we're going to turn to consider is the question how is the promise fulfilled? How is the promise fulfilled? So, first we'll begin with what the promise is. And then, secondly, we'll ask the question how is the promise fulfilled? Because indeed, it has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled. And so, we'll look at that. How is this promise fulfilled? Fulfilled, And in a similar fashion, if you're with us last Lord's Day, there will be three subpoints there. More conventional. Now you feel better, don't you? And then finally, after answering what is promised and how is the promise fulfilled, we will close with the question, finally, how does this apply to us? How does the promise and the fulfillment of the promise actually apply to us as followers of Jesus Christ here in the 21st century, right here in Powell, Tennessee at First Baptist Church in Powell. And we'll give you a few ways, a few exhortations, I think, that grow right out of this promise and the fulfillment of the promise. Young worshipers, I want to give you a bit here. I usually do this in the sermon. So for our children in the room, we want them in the text. There are a couple of items I want you to look for as we walk through the text and as we talk about fulfillment. Here they are. First, in verse 9, 
In verse 9, God compares Judah to a certain animal. What is that animal? Some of you know the answer already. Don't shout it. Just jot it down or log it away. You know it already. You've, you've already made a 50, and we've just begun, some of you. So God compares Judah to a certain animal. What is that animal? In verse 9. And then second, how are the promises of our text fulfilled? Or we could say promise. It's difficult to know how to talk about this. I think it really is promise singular, but there are so many pieces of the promise. So here I've said promises. But how is this promise fulfilled? Younger worshipers, you're able to walk through this with us. We want you engaged in the word of God. And so parents make use of these questions. And again, I'll say, younger theologians, younger worshipers, younger Bible interpreters, come to me after the service. I would love to hear your answer to the questions. Or if I didn't answer the question, tell me. Pastor Perry, I don't think you answered it. I didn't hear it. Help me understand. I'd love to open up God's word with you, okay? Well, before we go go to our primary question, what is promise, let's build just a little context. And this will be brief, but a little context for us so that we're better equipped to understand what is spoken in our text. This chapter, Genesis 49, consists of some of the final words of a man named Jacob. Some of you know this. Others of you perhaps don't know this. Jacob's name is... At one point in the Old Testament, Genesis 32, and then I think it's repeated again in Genesis 35, his name is changed. Jacob's name is changed to what? Do you remember this? Israel. That's right. Israel is also his name. Now it's his name given to him by the Lord. Well, Jacob ends up fathering 12 sons. 12 sons, and from these sons descended what became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so you need to know all of this. Jacob is speaking in the text, and perhaps even better, the Lord is speaking through Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons gathered around him, and what he's doing is he's blessing these 12 sons, and he's prophesying over these 12 sons just before his death and his burial instructions at the conclusion of Genesis 49. And those 12 sons will eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of Israel as a whole. And so that's the context. Now look back with me. I do want to point out a verse to you that's not in our text proper, but it's at the very beginning of the chapter. Look at Genesis 49, verse 1. Genesis 49, verse 1, because this sets the stage for the way this promise is fulfilled. Genesis 49, verse 1, notice, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you, notice, what shall happen to you in days to come. Now, that's a fine English translation, but I want want you to note something quickly because I think this will help us. The phrase in days to come could also be translated and is often translated in the last days. That's a little different, isn't it? It's not simply that what Jacob says is about the future, a year, two years, five years, a decade, as we understand it now. No, no, what Jacob says is actually something that's going to be fulfilled in this period of time, this era known as the last days. Which, by the way, and boy, this gets, this gets off, and we're not going to go there. We really aren't because, uh, well, it gets off. 
The last days began at the incarnation, according to the New Testament. So that's the beginning of the last days when Jesus comes. So this tells us how to read Genesis 49. How are we to interpret Genesis 49 as something leading us to Christ? That's in the text, okay? It's in Genesis 49, verse 1. Okay, that's a little context for us. I think that's sufficient. Let's turn to our first primary question. First primary question, what is promised? What is promised? And as I mentioned, I'm going to give you five promises or aspects of the promise. And I will mention to you a work, if you like reading up, uh, going a bit deeper and uh, ordering books, purchasing books and reading those books, or perhaps even just putting them on the shelf and telling yourself someday you're going to get to that book. You can put this one on the shelf. Walter Kaiser, uh, Walt, Walt Kaiser Jr., he's, he's uh, still around. I believe he's 90 or so, 91. Um, he wrote a work called The Messiah in the Old Testament. The Messiah in the Old Testament. It's a wonderful book. And um, the intention of the book is, is uh, user-friendliness and accessibility. You may find otherwise. Um, but, but he's a scholar, but he really did do a great job in bringing so many of these concepts to the pew. Um, and so I'd encourage you to, if you want to dig a little deeper, Walt Kaiser, The Messiah in the Old Testament. I read it in college, and it stays on my shelf. Some of the books I read in college, you know, they've left my shelf. But this one has stayed there, and I return to it from time to time. All right? So... I'm going to piggyback on what he says, of course, right out of the text. Five promises. First, what did God promise? God promises through Jacob to Judah, praise. Praise. Look with me at Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall what? Praise you. The day is coming. Well, what day? The end days. The last time. When your brothers, the people of Israel, will praise you. Now, there's a wordplay here. The Hebrew verb that is translated shall praise is the same root word that, that is used for Judah, Yehudah. Yada is the verb. Yehudah is the name Judah in Hebrew. You can hear it already, right? So the one whose name means praise actually will be praised someday. So there's a wordplay going on in the text, and I want you to see that. So that's the first aspect of this promise. God promises praise. And he promises praise, don't miss this, to Judah, to the tribe of Judah. Second, we'll go through these quickly. Second, God promises victory. God promises victory. Notice Genesis 49, 8 and 9. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Pretty strong. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Notice. And then verse 9, this image. And younger worshipers, pay close attention to this. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? So the image is that of a lion who crouches down, who's hunting, who seizes his or her prey who consumes his or her prey and is now relaxing and taking a nap, who would dare wake the lion? That's the idea. Victory. 
So Judah is compared, younger worshipers, Judah is compared to a lion in verse 9. And he has promised victory over his enemies. A victory, by the way, that will result in that praise. And so we come full circle back to praise. Your brothers shall praise you because of your victory over your enemies. Third, in addition to praise and victory, third, God promises to Judah a king. A king. And this, this is the heart of the promise. These others are just aspects and descriptions of this bit. This is the epicenter of what God promises through Jacob to Judah, a king. Notice Genesis 49, verse 10. Probably the more famous of these verses. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, of course, the scepter and the ruler's staff symbolize something else. It's not merely that the scepter is being focused on. It's, it's not merely that the ruler's staff is being focused on. This is what you call a metonymy. It's when something that's related to a broader subject is used to describe that subject. Okay, if I were to say to you, I don't even know if you say this anymore, but we used to when I was younger. If I were to say to you, let's, let's go shoot hoops, you know what I, what I was intending, right? What did I mean if I said, let's go shoot hoops? Let's go play basketball, right? I don't mean anything literal about shooting. And hoops there refers not even just to the basketball goal itself or to the net. It refers to the game of basketball. That's a metonymy. It's, it's related to the whole. That's what happens here. God promises the scepter is not going to part, or to depart, rather. And the ruler's staff from, from between his feet. That's kingship. That's the kingdom. There will be a king in Judah. And that, that kingship's not ultimately going to leave the tribe of Judah. So what I would say to you is that this verse promises a king from the tribe of Judah. In fact, it promises a line of kings, it seems. This line of kings that culminates and climaxes in a particular king. Hint, hint. I wonder about whom we're writing now in Genesis 49. Now, there is a little bit of debate. I like to point these things out, especially when they show up in the translations. And this one does. If you're holding different translations, you noticed it as we read it, probably. Different ways to translate a phrase the ESV, the English Standard Version, from which I read a moment ago and the one I preach out of, I, I love the ESV, uh, but we have many wonderful English translations. This is, this is the one I selected a few years ago, and I'm just, I'm, that's where I am. But the English Standard Version, alongside of some others, translates the phrase, until tribute comes to him. Did you see that? So notice verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And then here's where the phrase occurs, so the clause occurs that's debated, until tribute comes to him. Okay, that's one option. It's possible. Valid. Other English translations, if you're holding, for example, the King James Version, I believe, or, or the New King James Version, or even the NASB, the New American Standard, um, I think the 95 edition and even previous editions as well, they translate, they translate the Hebrew as a proper noun here. So here, these translations opt for until Shiloh comes. 
So again, going back to that verse, verse 10, it reads like this. According to those translations, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Proper noun. A name. That's, that's an option. It's possible, by the way. The Hebrew can read that way. And then there are still others. Of course, I'm just going to mention these three to you. And uh, some of you may have the, the CSB or the Net Bible. Um, there are various others that opt for something like this. They translate this clause, now listen to this one, until the one to whom the scepter belongs comes. You're thinking, my word, why the diversity? Until the one to whom the scepter belongs comes. So here's how the verse would read. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. There really isn't much debate about any of those. And now, these translations read, until the one to whom the scepter belongs comes, or something like that. Now, why the diversity? I want to mention this to you, not because I expect you're going to go out and study Hebrew, though you could. And your reward in heaven would be great. No, 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 no. Um, It has to do with Hebrew vowels. And I'm not going to get into it other than to mention it and vocalization. That's really what it boils down to. In other words, and this will tell you something about the challenge of Hebrew, okay? And in particular, Hebrew translations and interpreting the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. All three of those translations I just mentioned to you involve the exact same consonants, exact same letters. That's a lot of diversity. The question is, how do you vocalize the word or the words? And that's through the use of vowels. And that's where the debate surfaces. And so, just so you know, much of the text is not like this throughout the Old Testament. Some texts are, uh, but that gives you a bit about why this is so challenging and why there's so much diversity. Now, what do I think? I actually lean toward the third option. I lean toward the third translation I just mentioned. So I think the text is best translated like this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the one to whom the scepter belongs comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It sounds like it's referring to somebody in particular. What is clear, by the way, no matter the translation, if it's until Shiloh comes or until until tribute comes to him or until the one actually to whom the scepter truly belongs comes, either way, it's referring to a person. You see? So this promise, this promise given through Jacob to Judah by the Lord will culminate in a particular king. And I would suggest to you a king to whom the right to reign truly and finally belongs. That's the promise. Tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. In addition to praise, remember we're asking and answering the question. So going back again, what is promised? What is promised in the text? We've answered the question in this way. Praise is promised, victory is promised, a king is promised, fourth, 
God promises obedience. He promises obedience. And this is found at the conclusion of verse 10. Notice, the end of verse 10, and to him, that is to the king to come, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So again, all, all of this culminates in one person. Right? We're no longer talking about a tribe. We're talking about someone who actually descends from that tribe and to whom the right to reign finally truly belongs. And God says through Jacob to Judah, to him will be the obedience, not just of Israel, but of the peoples, plural, of the nations. That's the promise here. One commentator actually he's with the Lord now, suggests that this is the most staggering aspect of the promise in Genesis 49. Jacob, whose name is Israel, gathers the 12 sons of Israel together and he's blessing them and giving them promises concerning the future of Israel and at the center of that future is all nations, all peoples. It shouldn't surprise you, of course, if you've been with us, you know that if you flipped back in Genesis, back to Genesis 12, God's promise to Abram, who would eventually be renamed Abraham, is in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this promise continues now to Judah. Fifth, fifth aspect of the promise. Okay, so... So far, we've seen God promises praise, he promises victory, he promises a king, he promises obedience among the peoples, and then fifth, he promises prosperity. Prosperity. Notice verses 11 and 12. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Highly poetic. He has washed his garments in wine. And his vesture in the blood of grapes, verse 12, his eyes, again, we're talking about this coming king, okay, to whom the obedience of the peoples belongs. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What's being talked about here? Well, the presence of vines, the presence of grapes, the presence of wine often symbolize opulence and wealth and prosperity in Scripture. So, the coming king will bring unparalleled life. Unparalleled abundance. The abundance will be such that a beast of burden like a donkey will be tied not to a post, not to a rock, but to a grapevine. Grapevines were valuable at this time. They ate from grapevines. They drank from grapevines. They sustained their lives through grapevines. There will come a time when the prosperity brought about through this king would be such abundance and such wealth that grapevines would be cast aside without even thought because they'd be plentiful. That's, that's the image here, you see. And the eyes being darker than wine, teeth whiter than milk. Again, prosperity. In summary, let's, let's come full circle with this first question. And this really is the question on which I intended to spend more time than the other questions. It's the foundation for us. So in summary... 
What is promised? What's promised in the text? Well, going back to verse 1, in the last days, in the last days, a king would come from the tribe of Judah. And this king would receive praise. He would secure victory over his enemies. He would be given the obedience of the nations. And he would offer unparalleled prosperity to his people. He would offer abundant life to his people. I wonder about whom we're talking at this point. The second question. Second question I want us to consider this morning is how is this promise fulfilled? Many of you could answer this question right now, but we're going to walk through this. How is this promise fulfilled? We're going to mention three. The first one is partial, and that's often the case. By the way, that's important to understand. As you're reading through God's word and as you, as you come across these prophecies, it is often, not always, it is often the case that a prophecy will receive a partial fulfillment before it receives a kind of fundamental and climactic fulfillment. Often the case, and this is one of those promises or prophecies. So first, the promise of a coming king from the tribe of Judah was partially fulfilled in David. It was partially fulfilled in David. Psalm 78, verses 67 to 70. Let me read this text to you, and then we'll just keep moving. Psalm 78, beginning in verse 67 He rejected, that is God, God rejected the tent of Joseph through Jacob. In other words, although you would think after reading Genesis, Joseph was going to be the one to rise to prominence. No, no, it will be Judah. Joseph was prominent in Genesis. It will be Judah who becomes prominent in the last days. So he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, verse 68, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves, verse 69. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. Verse 70, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. That's it. So there's a partial fulfillment when this man, after God's own heart, is chosen by the Lord through Samuel. This is later to be king over Israel. And David was descended from the tribe of Judah. It was a partial fulfillment. It was not a final fulfillment. In fact, we're going to see next Lord's Day, if the Lord permits. Uh, Next Lord's Day, we're going to look at 2 Samuel 7. And when God is speaking to David, he actually promises not a temporary kingdom, but an eternal one. And what's the problem with David then? David's dead. David no longer reigns. His kingdom came to an end, at least in his person. Solomon, similarly, his son, his kingdom came to an end in his person. So this must be talking about someone else finally, but it was partially fulfilled in David. Secondly, okay, second fulfillment, and this is really where where all this culminates and comes together. The promise in Genesis 49, 8 through 12 was fundamentally fulfilled in Christ. It was fundamentally fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Let me mention a few passages to you in the New Testament. We won't turn to these. There are so many of them, but the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, begins by recounting the ancestors of Jesus. And you think, well, why is it important to recount the ancestors? Why are genealogies so important? Well, they're tracing the line according to promise. 
They're tracing the line according to promise. And then in the first book, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew begins recounting the ancestors of Jesus beginning with Abraham. And Matthew 1, 2, and 3 reads this. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. And his brothers, they're not even named. Right? Why? Because what matters is that you see at the beginning of Matthew's gospel that this one we're talking about, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel about Jesus, is indeed the one about whom Genesis 49 was written. He is the one who descended from the tribe of Judah, Jesus the Christ. And so this is how Matthew's gospel begins introducing Jesus. Also, the angel Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33 in this way. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now, what was the promise? Praise from his brothers. Who are his brothers? The other tribes. Here, promise is being fulfilled in Jesus. Luke chapter 1, the day is coming when Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, these New Testament authors really are, what they're doing is they're interpreting the Old Testament as they're carried along by God's Spirit. The New Testament really is a commentary on the Old Testament. This is also why John, the Apostle John, describes Jesus in Revelation 5, 5, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, where do you get this image of a lion? Genesis 49, verse 9. The lion of the tribe of Judah. One more bit I'll mention to you as we continue to move through this and talk about how this is fulfilled in Jesus, and then we'll move on to this next bit of fulfillment. Remember the prosperity we talked about a moment ago in Genesis 49, verses 8 and 12? That was a part of this, right? So, so in addition to praise and, and victory and a king and obedience of the peoples or the nations, you have this promise of abundance, this promise of prosperity. In John chapter 2, and the prosperity is described how? With wine, with grapes. John chapter 2. Jesus performs what John calls the first sign. What is the sign? Well, he attends a wedding in Cana in Galilee where they run out of wine. They run out of wine at this wedding. By the way, wedding partings at this time lasted, I mean, somewhere in the ballpark of five, seven days. I mean, these were parties. The Jewish people knew how to celebrate at a wedding. And so you can imagine how one might run out of something to drink, out of wine, in this case, at a wedding party. And this happens at the wedding he attends, and then he instructs the servants, after Mary, of course, says to the servants, hey, do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus instructs the servants to go and fill jars, and each of these jars hold about 30 gallons of water. So go and fill these jars holding 30 gallons of water. And what does he do? Jesus transforms the water into wine. And John makes it a point to tell us that the wine filled the jars to the brim. What's the point? How is this a sign? 
How does this signify who Jesus is? Well, here's what it's telling us. The incarnation of the Son of God brings unparalleled prosperity and life. The promises throughout the Old Testament, including Genesis 49, concerning the last days when God would finally send this king who would bring about this era where God's people enjoyed abundant life, the New Testament calls it eternal life. This has all been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, okay? So we've seen that partial fulfillment How is this promise fulfilled? Partially in David, not finally. It's finally fulfilled in Jesus. And then third, I want you to notice that the promise, as it is fulfilled in Jesus, this promise is being fulfilled in us who trust in Jesus. I hope you're seeing a pattern as we move through Advent, if you've been with us. We've consistently seen partial fulfillments, fundamental fulfillments in Jesus. And then by extension, because it's fulfilled in Christ, everyone who trusts in Jesus now partakes of that fulfillment. So how? Now watch this. Watch this. First, it's being fulfilled in us as we follow Christ's example of suffering. Now, this should strike you as a bit odd. How is it that a kingdom is characterized by suffering? Do you remember what was placed on the placard that hung just above Jesus on the cross? The king of the Jews. By the way, you know where you get that word Jews? Judah. The king of Judah. That's what the placard read. Ironic, isn't it? It was inscribed as a kind of mockery, making fun maybe of the Jews and making fun of this king But in fact, it's true, isn't it? Jesus is a different kind of king. The kingdom he inaugurates by means of his death and resurrection is a different kind of kingdom. There is no other king we can imagine that is comparable to King Jesus. After all, his reign begins on a cross as he is cursed. For our sins before the Father. In fact, while he hung on the cross, some even mocked him. In Luke 23, verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And what's ironic is this, it's precisely because he is the king of the Jews that he must not save himself. He shows us what it means to reign first. To reign in Christ means first the path of suffering. First, the path of pain. First, the path of death. And then, now, the good news, 
on the one hand, look, I don't want to miss that. What this means for you, dear Christian, throughout this life is that when you are facing suffering, when you face suffering, when you face the diagnosis that you wish you could just cause to dissipate, when you get the phone call you wish you never had to receive, when you have to say goodbye to a loved one, when you're afflicted with even the anxieties, pressures just of living as a fallen person in a fallen world, each of those are opportunities for you to walk in the footsteps of King Jesus, to bear his name as a citizen of his kingdom, and in an ironic way, to reign over suffering by enduring it, by the power of the Spirit. It is, it is finally when we endure death in faith that we will experience final victory over death. And Christ taught us this, didn't he? He defeats death by death. So it is with us. So this promise, partial fulfillment in David, fundamental fulfillment in Jesus, and then by extension for us who trust in Jesus Christ, we experience fulfillment of this promise as we endure suffering by the power of God's Spirit who lives within us in faith, hope, and love. But that's not all. It's not all. It's not the end of the story, okay? In fact, it's because of the joy set before us that we can endure these things the promise of reigning with Christ does not terminate on the cross. It doesn't terminate in suffering. It will be fulfilled in us as we are raised to life to reign with Christ forever. And in that moment, after Jesus Christ returns to this earth and lays claim over everything as the manifested king of heaven and earth, then we will reign with him, never to die, never to suffer Again, consider what John writes in Revelation 22, 3 through 5, concerning the end. After Jesus returns, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb. You hear that kingly imagery? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Verse 4, this is Revelation 22 again. Now verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And then finally, this bit, they will reign forever and ever. Who will reign? His servants. So finally, that promise is going to be fulfilled as we endure suffering in faith, as the Spirit of God preserves us, not in our strength, but in His, on account of Christ. It's not within us, but it is within Him. As we endure suffering in faith, in hope, in love, the day is coming when Jesus Christ returns and we will reign visibly forever and ever and ever with Christ the king from the tribe of Judah. So that's the answer to our second question. Let's conclude answering our final question. 
How? We've, we've asked and answered what is promised. We've asked and answered how is the promise fulfilled. Finally, how does this apply to us? And, and similar to last week, I feel like, boy, this is just an easy step. We've already talked about some of this, but let me give you a few exhortations, okay? First, first, surrender to Jesus as your king. Surrender to Jesus Christ this morning as your king. Friends, we come into this world with a desire to be our own sovereign. Just take the toy away from the toddler and see what happens. What is the toddler saying? The toddler is saying, I am my own king. It's exactly what the toddler is saying, right? How do I know that? Because I is just like him or her, right? It was a toddler, and I wish that struggle was gone now. Still behave like one from time to time. We are afflicted from the womb with the desire to reign over our own lives. We don't like being told what to do. And even when we know the other person is right, we're willing to suffer for the other person. Right? Because by golly, I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of knowing that they're right and reigning over me. I will resist. My wife has asked me from time to time, here we go, we're getting personal now, you ready? I'm not going to tell her faults, I'll tell mine. She's asked me from time to time, with humility and grace, babe, we could have avoided (laughs) that conversation we had, passionate, heated conversation. If you had just recognized from the beginning of the conversation what you just recognized, right? And I think to myself, she's right. She's exactly right. Why did it take me 20 minutes? And then I begin to think, it didn't take me 20 minutes. I knew it instantly. And I resisted. Right? You laugh, I hope, because you understand. It's in us, isn't it, friends? And this is how we come into the world. May I suggest to you that our kingship is a facade. It's a masquerade. Let me explain. In reality, apart from Christ, we exist under the tyranny of a harsh king. We exist under the tyranny of a kingdom known in Scripture as the domain of darkness. We are afflicted by sin. What's ironic is when I think I'm reigning as king, I'm actually serving the harsh master of sin that's reigning over my life and submitting to the enemy referred often in Scripture as Satan. It's a facade. I'm never actually king. And this is why, now don't miss this, this is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 describes 
freedom in Christ, not as the absence of a master. He describes freedom in Christ as the transfer, the freedom from the master and tyranny of sin, and now the presence of a benevolent master, a life-giving master in Jesus Christ. That's freedom. Freedom is not existing apart from a king or being our own king. Oh, no. Freedom actually is being under the right king of giving our allegiance by God's grace to the work of God's spirit in us to this king. C.S. Lewis once remarked to a friend, I love this statement, I was not born to be free. I was born to adore and obey. Lewis knew all too well that we are going to adore and obey a master. Which master will it be for you, friend, this morning? I would exhort you then, in light of this, turn from serving the master of sin, of death, of hell, of punishment, of Satan, and turn to the benevolence of King Jesus who offers you freedom to serve him by means of his death on the cross, by means of his resurrection bodily on the third day, by means of his ascension into heaven, and by means of his promised future return when he will banish all enemies of his. Trust in, surrender to King Jesus. If you'd like to talk more about this, I would love to visit with you. Others would love to visit with you. Stick around after the service, would you? If you have questions about what it means to surrender to Christ, we would love to talk with you about this. In fact, though we have as followers of Jesus, the Christian life in many respects is one of continual surrender to Jesus Christ. And so we would love to come alongside of you and you alongside of us. So meet us at that room out there I mentioned earlier called the Crossroads where we can do so. Second, so again, how does this apply to us? First, surrender to Jesus as your king. Second, proclaim his kingdom to others. Proclaim his kingdom to others. We're just going to be brief here. Just mention this. Jesus instructed his disciples, Matthew 10, verse 7, when he's sending out his disciples to others. He says, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come. On what basis? Because the king has come. And so this is the message of Christianity boiled down, as it were to something really quite simple, right? The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, promised future return of Jesus Christ, is the story of the king. And so we go and we share this story with others, this true story, this life-giving story. So parents, share this story with your children. Tell them the story of King Jesus. There is never an easier time I don't than this season of sharing the story of King Jesus. And you may think to yourself, well, I just can't share it like others share it. That's fine. Don't forget the words, and I believe it was Charles Spurgeon's grandfather who filled in for Spurgeon as Spurgeon was running late. I may be butchering this entirely, but it sure sounds good. And as Spurgeon was coming, you know, one of the greatest preachers the church has ever known, Spurgeon was coming, his grandfather said something like this. He may preach the gospel better than I do, but he could never preach a better gospel. 
So be encouraged, Christians. Others may preach the gospel better than you and better than me, but they could never preach a better gospel. So proclaim this gospel to your children, to your spouses, share this gospel, to your friends, share this gospel. Again, this season just begs for it. It begs for it. Recently, there was a concert that happened. I won't mention specifics, but a concert where so many wonderful lyrics are being sung, likely by people who don't even know the Lord. What an opportunity to share the gospel with people who do not yet know, have not surrendered and given their allegiance to King Jesus. So go and proclaim his kingdom to others. And then third, in addition to surrendering to Jesus as your king and proclaiming his kingdom to others, we'll come full circle. Live in obedience to Jesus. Live in obedience to Jesus as citizens of his kingdom. I thought about this even this morning as I was praying about this and meditating about this. Early in the mornings, I get up early Sunday mornings to just kind of think through some more things, finish up some things, at times rewrite some things. I'll do that no matter how much time I have. Consider this Advent season what you are still withholding from Christ as King. The Lord impressed that upon my heart this morning. Perry, what are you still, what are you still grasping in the presence of King Jesus? How might you begin to lessen and loosen that grip on whatever it is that belongs to the sovereign over heaven and earth and the sovereign over your life? Are you submitting, friends, are you submitting your family to Christ? No qualifications. Not if you do this, I will do this. No, it's yours, Christ Jesus. Are you submitting your job to Christ? Without qualification, are you submitting your business to Christ, your employees to Christ? They belong to him, your future. Have you gladly and eagerly yielded it to King Jesus, your hobbies, Do they belong to Christ in practice in your life? Are there parts of your life in secret that you withhold from the benevolent and sovereign reign of Christ? Yield it to him. Yield it to him. I'm convinced that the Christian life in large part is the process whereby we yield everything to Christ Jesus. One of my favorite Advent hymns, and we're wrapping up, was written by John, uh, Charles Wesley, I almost said John Wesley, written by Charles Wesley, brother of John Wesley. And uh, we sang this earlier, actually, and uh, last night during our time of worship as a family, we sang this, and I, it was, it's just on my heart, and I wanted to close with it and, and just meditate on this together because I think it brings so many of these themes together in poetic fashion in the person of Jesus. Let's conclude as we meditate on these lines. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength 
and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. I wish I could sing. I'd sing right now. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule. That's the invitation. Rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Let's pray.